Welcome to the Book of Mormon, a masterclass. This podcast is designed to help you come closer to Jesus Christ by seriously studying the Book of Mormon. This was originally designed as a video course. To see the visuals for this episode, please visit johnhiltonii.com slash the Book of Mormon. I love to read, but as the years have gone on, I find it harder and harder to find time to read. So I have to be more and more selective about what I choose to read. And I find myself relying on recommendations or endorsements from others. Now, romance isn't my number one genre of choice, but recently I saw a new romance novel that caught my attention. It's called Pride and Sensibility. So it was intriguing. I flipped it over to see if anybody powerful had endorsed the book. And I saw the endorsement said, I ardently love and admire this book. And it was signed by Mr. Darcy, which if you're into romance novels, you know that's a pretty good endorsement. So I thought, I'm going to have to check this book out. Recently, I stumbled across another book, and its endorsements were also amazing. Take a look at the back cover. My soul delights in the words of this book, Nephi said. Search this book, Moroni said. And the Savior himself said, a commandment I give unto you that ye search this book diligently. I was like, wow, what book is this? And I flipped it over. And of course, I was seeing the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a powerful book. Sometimes we view it as a barrier, but I hope that in this class and our next class that we will see a lot of spiritual power from Isaiah's chapters. Nephi loved them. In fact, as we saw already, he says, my soul delights in Isaiah's words. And Nephi doesn't just delight in Isaiah's words because he loves Isaiah. It's because Isaiah points him and us to Christ. Nephi continues, My soul delighteth in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ. And also, my soul delighteth in the covenants of the Lord, which he hath made. Yea, my soul delighteth in his grace. It's interesting to note that the phrase, my soul delighteth, appears 11 times in the Book of Mormon across multiple chapters, but only in Nephi's voice. Just like we talked about in our last class, individuals have distinctive, unique voices. My soul delighteth appears to be a unique phrase to Nephi. His soul delights in Jesus Christ. And as I was thinking about the word delight, I was curious to see how it was defined in the 1828 dictionary. Remember, this is the dictionary that was contemporary at the time Joseph Smith was translating the Book of Mormon. It says, to have or take great pleasure, to be greatly pleased or rejoiced. And I thought, does my soul find great joy, great pleasure in Jesus Christ? Sometimes we're just so busy running from one thing to the next. that When I read this phrase, my soul delighteth, I just sat down for a couple of minutes, and just spent some time rejoicing, delighting in Jesus Christ. Now, before we dive into Nephi's delight with Isaiah, I want to step back and look at a little bit of a bigger picture of Nephi's writings. In 1 Nephi 1-18, through we see mostly a storyline. It's the story of how Lehi's family went from Jerusalem to the Promised Land. And then in chapters 19 through 22, it's mostly preaching. Then in 2 Nephi chapters 1 through 5, we see a short storyline of Lehi preaching to his children, and then Nephi and those who followed him separating themselves from Laman and Lemuel. 
Finally, the rest of 2 Nephi, chapter 6 through 33, is all preaching. There's no more storyline. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I loved 1 Nephi a lot more than I did 2 Nephi. 1 Nephi was exciting. There was adventure. 2 Nephi just sort of dragged on a bit for me. But how did Nephi view 2 Nephi chapters 6 through 33? This is going to be a little bit intricate, but stay with me. I think it's worth exploring. At the time Nephi made the large plates, he wasn't aware that he would later make the small plates. If you remember, Nephi's record on the large plates was abridged by Mormon, and that became the lost 116 pages. What Nephi wrote on the small plates is what we have as 1st and 2nd Nephi. So in 1st Nephi chapter 19, Nephi records, After I had made these plates, meaning the small plates, by way of commandment, I, Nephi, received a commandment that the ministry and the prophecies, the more plain and precious parts of them, should be written upon these plates. Again, meaning the small plates, what we have as 1st and 2nd Nephi. And that the things which were written upon the small plates should be kept for the instruction of my people and also for other wise purposes, like replacing the lost 116 pages. Then Nephi tells us something that we might skip over. He says, An account of my making these plates, the small plates, shall be given hereafter. Now we could ask ourselves, okay, when is it that Nephi is going to give an account of making the small plates? That comes at the very end of 2 Nephi chapter 5. In verse 28, we read, 30 years had passed away from the time we left Jerusalem, and I, Nephi, had kept the records upon my plates, meaning the large plates, which I had made right after arriving in the promised land of my people thus far. And it came to pass that the Lord God said unto me, Make other plates, meaning the small plates. Wherefore, I, Nephi, to be obedient to the commandments of the Lord, went and made these plates, meaning the small plates, upon which I have engraven these things, meaning everything we've read so far in the Book of Mormon. And it sufficeth me to say that forty years had passed away, and we had already had wars and contentions with our brethren. Now, there's a couple of details that are worth pointing out. First is that the books of First and Second Nephi were written at least 30 years after Nephi left the Promised Land. This is his account as a much older person. He's not a teenager keeping a diary at this point. So Nephi tells us that 30 years after leaving Jerusalem, the Lord told him to make small plates. Now, do you remember back in First Nephi chapter 19? Nephi said, later, I'm going to tell you about when I made the small plates. So he's just done that. So back in 1 Nephi chapter 19, remember that Nephi talked about writing the more plain and precious parts of his prophecies. And then he says, an account of my making the small plates will be given hereafter, meaning at the end of 2 Nephi chapter 5. And then, meaning after I give you an account of making these small plates, behold, I proceed to do according to that which I have spoken namely to share the more plain and precious prophecies. And this I do, that the more sacred things may be kept for the knowledge of my people. Nevertheless, I do not write anything upon plates, save it be, I think, it is sacred. So Nephi tells us, look, everything I'm writing is sacred, but there's also more sacred things. And once I tell you about creating the small plates, that's when I'm going to tell you 
the more sacred things. In other words, it seems like Nephi is telling us that 2 Nephi 6-33 through is the most important part of what he's writing. He wants us to pay attention to it. Dr. Joseph Spencer wrote, Nephi thus twice privileges the Isaiah chapters. Not only are they among the more sacred and precious things of 2 Nephi 6-30, through but they form the obviously privileged centerpiece of those more sacred things. Indeed, one might suggest that all of Nephi's careful structural work was intended first and foremost to ensure that his readers would give their most sustained and dedication study to the Isaiah chapters. There is then an unavoidable irony about the way Isaiah is usually handled by Book of Mormon readers, that is, as a barrier. Seeing how Nephi viewed Isaiah, understanding that his soul delights in Isaiah's words, motivates me to want to study Isaiah more carefully. Something that's interesting is, if you took all of the verses from Isaiah in the Book of Mormon, collected them all into one place, and called it the Book of Isaiah, it would be the fourth largest book in the Book of Mormon. Approximately one-third of the Book of Isaiah appears in the Book of Mormon, so it's worth our effort to study it. In a previous class, we spent some time with the Isaiah map. If you're not familiar with the Isaiah map, I recommend that you go to the course website and review the Isaiah map because it's definitely going to come in handy in our time together today. We'll be reading 2 Nephi chapters 12 through 24 over the next two classes. And one little trick is that 2 Nephi 12 through 24 is similar to Isaiah chapters 2 through 14. So whatever chapter of 2 Nephi you're in in this block, subtract 10, and that's where you'll be in the book of Isaiah. Now, I want to jump ahead to 2 Nephi chapter 16 because chronologically speaking, this is the beginning of Isaiah's ministry. We read that in the year King Uzziah died, this would be about the year 740 BC, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah is astonished at this vision, and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people with unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Have you ever felt unworthy to do a task that the Lord has set out for you? Have you ever felt unprepared that you weren't good enough? Isaiah can definitely relate. You know who else can relate is Elder Neil L. Anderson of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. On one occasion, he shared his experience when contemplating a mission. He wasn't sure if he was ready. He said, I remember praying, Heavenly Father, how can I serve a mission when I know so little? I believed in the church but I felt my spiritual knowledge was very limited. As I prayed, the feeling came, you don't know everything, but you know enough. That reassurance gave me the courage to take the next step into the mission field. Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ can take whatever we have and strengthen us to be enough. We see this in the case of Isaiah, even though he felt like, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready for this. In verse 6, one of the seraphim came to Isaiah having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Perhaps we can see in this symbolism relating to Christ's atonement. 
just like Isaiah's lips were purified, we can be purified and clean and made ready to do whatever it is the Lord requires of us. And so I love it when the Lord says, whom shall I send? Isaiah raises his hand and he says, here am I, send me. Again, we see echoes of Jesus Christ who in the pre-mortal realm said, here am I, send me, volunteering to be our savior. Take a moment and think about that phrase, here am I, send me. Do you and I have this spirit in my heart? I'll be honest, sometimes I've been in elders quorum and they say, hey, we need someone to come to church early and help set up chairs. And I sometimes have the spirit of, who is he? Send him. But that's not what we're looking for. It's, who am I? Send me. Recently, I received a message from a member of our class named Michael. Michael and his wife, Maria, both have incredible stories. And hopefully, we'll talk about them more in a future class. But for now, I want us to listen to Michael sharing a story of his life when he was a young return missionary and was invited to take a calling that to him seemed too challenging to accept. I served my mission in Ghana, Kumasi, and later on I got an opportunity to work at the Ghana MTC as a soil instructor. And being in Accra, that was a new area for me getting to know the people. And I receive a call from the bishop and he tells me that the stake president will want to meet with me. So the following Sunday I meet with the stake president and he tells me, Brother Mbithi, I would love to extend a calling to you as the eldest quorum president. I had a lot of excuses to give him because I felt I was not good enough, I was not prepared. And around me there were men, there were old men who were prepared enough in the knowledge of the gospel to lead. And so I felt at this young age I was not ready enough to lead them. But something within me also, it was pushing me and telling me that I have been prepared by the Lord. And that faith was pushing me to say, here I am, Lord, send me. And I felt that was something that the Lord was asking me to do. Michael later told me that it was a challenge to serve in this calling, but he felt the Lord's strengthening hand, and he was able to make a difference in the lives of the people that he served. The same thing will be true for you and me as we raise our hands and say, here am I, send me. That can come in a lot of ways. Recently, I've been experimenting with this as I feel impressions from the Holy Ghost to just mentally say to myself, here am I, send me, Lord. I'm ready to do whatever it is that you want me to do. Now, as we turn back the pages and go to 2 Nephi chapter 12, I again encourage you to take a careful look at the Isaiah map. We're going to be seeing a lot of Israel, Judah, Syria, even some Lebanon and Assyria. So the more you know about these countries, the details of their kings, their capital cities, the easier it will be for you to understand these chapters we're about to explore. So in 2 Nephi chapter 12, verse 1, we read, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now, I want to emphasize that up front. It's very clear in the text. This is a prophecy about Judah and Jerusalem. For now, let's jump ahead to verse 11. And it shall come to pass that the lofty looks of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down. Like we talked about in a previous class, Isaiah often speaks in doubles, so be on the lookout for that. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, for the day of the Lord soon cometh upon all nations, yea, upon everyone, yea, upon the proud and the lofty, and upon everyone who is lifted up, and he shall be brought low. Yea, the day of the Lord shall come upon all the cedars of Lebanon, 
for they are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan. Now, if you remember from the Isaiah map, we talked about how Lebanon has these incredible cedar trees. We didn't talk about Bashan at all on the Isaiah map, but again, think about doubles and just understanding the basic message from the context, the way that Isaiah is using the phrase oaks of Bashan, it's clear that these are really powerful trees. Continuing, we read, and upon all the high mountains, and upon all the hills, and upon all the nations which are lifted up, and upon all people, and upon every high tower, upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of the sea, and all the ships of Tarshish. We don't need to know where Tarshish is or even understand what it is to get the gist of this verse. The ships of Tarshish must be some kind of very powerful navy. The Lord is saying, in other words, no matter how high, no matter how lofty the thing, everything is going to be brought down. And this prophecy is going to come true for Jerusalem and Judah. Because of their pride, they will be brought down. Now, before we continue with this theme, I want to jump back to verse 2, because these are probably the most famous verses in 2 Nephi chapter 12. It shall come to pass in the last days, when the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, all nations shall flow unto it. I think we're used to reading this verse as being about the Salt Lake Temple, the Conference Center, and remember that Isaiah's words can have multiple fulfillments. In verse 1, we just heard Isaiah say this is a prophecy about Judah and Jerusalem. So it'd be very strange if in the very next verse, he says, well, and now let me tell you about the Salt Lake Temple in the latter days. So clearly there's another context for this verse that has to do with Judah and Jerusalem. In 2 Nephi chapters 12 through 14, or Isaiah chapters 2 through 4, Isaiah is giving a lot of bad news to the Jews in Jerusalem. So the way that I'm seeing it is the first couple of verses of 2 Nephi 12 and the last few verses of 2 Nephi chapter 14 are kind of giving some hope and encouragement. Sort of like that old managerial technique of give someone a compliment, then tell them all the things they're doing wrong, then give them another compliment. Isaiah says, here's a little bit of good news, here's tons of bad news, and now here's a little bit of good news at the end. Now, in terms of thinking about our day, I love what President Gordon B. Hinckley said. Ever since the Salt Lake Temple was dedicated, we have interpreted that scripture from Isaiah as applying to this sacred house of the Lord and the conference center. Now, as we turn to 2 Nephi chapter 13, I want to point out a couple of details. If you look in the chapter heading, it says about 559 to 545 BC. This is telling us when Nephi was recording these words. So Nephi is living at this time period, but Isaiah is giving this prophecy back around somewhere in the 730-740 BC area. We read, For behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, doth take away from Jerusalem and from Judah the stay and the staff, the whole staff of bread, and the whole stay of water. So again, it's very clear this is a prophecy about Judah and Jerusalem, and the Lord is going to be taking away things from them. In verse 2, we read, The mighty man, the man of war, the judge, the prophet, the prudent, the ancient, the captain of fifty, the honorable man, the counselor, the cunning artificer, the eloquent orator. All of these powerful people are going to be taken out of the city. Then in verse 4, we read, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. I know that I've sometimes misunderstood these verses. When I read about children being princes and babes ruling, I think, oh, that's so beautiful. Jesus loves the little children. Little children are leaders. This is awesome. That is not what these verses are saying. 
These verses are saying that the situation is going to be so bad, every competent person will have been taken out of Jerusalem, so now nobody is left to be a leader. In fact, in verse 6, we read, A man shall take hold of his brother of the house of his father and say, You have clothing, be thou our ruler. Can you see how that's a pretty low bar for leadership when someone says, Oh, wow, this person has clothes. They must be ready to be the leader. Let's jump over to 2 Kings chapter 24 and see how this prophecy was fulfilled within a few generations. In verse 11, we see Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came against Jerusalem. Verse 14, he carried away all Jerusalem and all the princes, all the mighty men of valor, even 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained save the poorest sort of the people of the land. And all the men of might, even 7,000, and craftsmen and smiths, a thousand, all that were strong and apt for war, even them, the king of Babylon, brought captive to Babylon. Can you see how this prophecy of Isaiah was literally fulfilled? And this is being fulfilled about the time period of Lehi. This is why Lehi and his family are leaving Jerusalem. So we might ask ourselves, why is it that the Lord is causing these great trials to come upon Jerusalem and Judah? Well, one reason that we've already seen is great pride. Another has to do with oppressing the poor. In 2 Nephi chapter 13, verse 14, we read, Ye have eaten up the vineyard, and the spoil of the poor is in your houses. In other words, the Lord is saying that the things that should belong to the poor, you've taken from them. What mean ye, the Lord says, ye beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor. Now you and I might think, wow, those people in Judah and Jerusalem, they're, they're sure doing the wrong thing. Lucky we're doing a lot better today. Nephi, as he later gives a prophecy about us in the latter days, uses this same phrase from Isaiah. He says, Latter-day Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes. They get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. I'm pretty confident that nobody taking this masterclass is intentionally stealing from the poor or grinding on their faces. But as I was preparing for class this morning, I could feel a little nudge from the Holy Ghost saying, John, are you doing enough with the resources you've been given to help others? If not, you're robbing them. As we continue reading in chapter 13, Isaiah talks about the people of his day who had chains and bracelets and mufflers and tablets and the crisping pins, all of these different accessories that they were trusting in. Now, scholars today debate exactly what these different items were. There were some type of fancy accessories, and who knows, maybe one of us is wearing a crisping pin right now. But I think what's really important is the idea of, am I putting my trust and my efforts in material things, or am I focusing on the Lord? The people that Isaiah was talking about trusted in material things, the chains, the bracelets, the mufflers, the tablets. Now, I'm pretty sure that when Isaiah was talking about mufflers and tablets, he wasn't talking about car parts and iPads. But can we see the similar thing in our day where maybe it's the phones, the AirPods, the different items that we rely on? And Isaiah says that because the people relied on these external things, it shall come to pass instead of a sweet smell, there shall be stink. Instead of a girdle, a rent. Instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, a girding of sackcloth, burning instead of beauty. Her gates shall lament and mourn, and she shall be desolate.
As we step back and look at these chapters holistically, how do we apply them in our lives? Some of the themes I see are, first, pride will lead to destruction. At all costs, I want to choose to be humble. Second, I should give more to those in need, and I should avoid being materialistic. I want to point out that there's still hope for the people in Judah and Jerusalem. Like I said earlier, 2 Nephi chapters 12 through 14 has a little bit of hope both at the beginning and the end. After talking about this destruction, Isaiah says, the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. That cloud of smoke by day, that fire by night, can you hear the hymn? Our shadow by day, our pillar by night. This is a reference back to the Exodus. And I love how it says in every dwelling place, in every home, there will be this spiritual power in every assembly, in every church. And as we continue, there shall be a tabernacle or a temple for a place of refuge. No matter where we've been, there's hope for us going forward. Now, as we flip the page and turn to chapter 15, we see that this is still a judgment of God against prideful nations. We read, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it, and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. So the storyline so far is the Lord has a vineyard. He's really excited about it. He's put a lot of effort into this vineyard, cultivating it, making it a wonderful place, but it brings forth bad fruit. So the Lord says, what could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, it brought forth wild grapes. Now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up, and I will break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. Then note this last phrase. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. This last sentence tells us that there's a couple of ways we could think about this prophecy. If we think of the vineyard as Israel, the northern kingdom, then we can see that its destruction is going to come from Assyria in the 730s to 720s when Assyria will come in and scatter the ten tribes. Or if we think of the vineyard as being Judah, that destruction would come around 600 BC as Babylon sweeps in and destroys Jerusalem. So either way, the prophecy is that Israel, Judah, will be destroyed by the Lord because they haven't brought forth good fruits. Now, let's take a look at a verse that's probably one of the most challenging verses to understand, and I want to do this to show how Isaiah doesn't have to be hard. In 2 Nephi chapter 15, verse 10, we read, Ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. If you're a normal person, you're like, I have no idea what this is talking about. But let's break it down and see if we understand and maybe use a couple of tools along the way. So the Bible dictionary often has great insights. If we look up weights and measures, it says a bath is a liquid measurement of about 
eight and a quarter US gallons. So if you think about that phrase, 10 acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, you don't have to be a farmer to know that if you've got 10 acres of grapes and all you yield from that is eight gallons of wine, that is not a very good harvest. Similarly, think about the phrase, the seed of a homer shall yield an ephah. So in context, I can already probably guess that this is a reference to a very poor harvest. There's another tool, though, that we can use to help solidify our understanding. Sometimes when reading the Isaiah chapters, I like to go to different Bible versions of the Isaiah chapters and see if that helps my understanding. For example, the New Living Translation of the Bible is written at a sixth grade reading level. And the corresponding verse there says, 10 baskets of seed will yield only one basket of grain. Again, it should be obvious that that's a poor harvest. Usually you plant one seed and you get lots of fruit from it. Now it's saying you're only going to get one-tenth of a seed back from what you plant. A very poor harvest indeed. All of this is part of the judgments of God that are coming against Israel and Judah for their pride. Now there are some more powerful details in chapter 15 that we'll come back to in our next class. But for now, I want to jump ahead to chapter 17. And chapter 17 and 18 really is a test of how well you know the Isaiah map. Let's start, and I'll explain along the way. And it came to pass that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. Now, that's a lot of names just packed into one verse. But if we just break it down, it's saying Ahaz was the king of Jerusalem and two other countries, Syria and Israel, were coming to attack Jerusalem. A little bit of the backstory here is that there was a superpower in the land, Assyria. And Assyria was threatening to come and attack these smaller countries like Syria, Israel, and Judah. So Syria and Israel were making an alliance, and they were trying to get Judah to be a part of it. Let's keep going. In verse 2, we read, It was told the house of David, now that's Ahaz in Jerusalem, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Remember, Ephraim is the capital of Israel. And Ahaz's heart was moved, and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Every time I read this phrase, I think of Pocahontas and the colors of the wind. That is not what this verse is talking about. It's saying they're scared out of their minds because these two nations are coming to attack. So the Lord tells Isaiah to go and say to Ahaz, Take heed, be quiet, fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands. In context, the two smoking firebrands are Israel and Syria, the two countries that are coming to attack Judah. And the Lord is saying through Isaiah, don't worry, Ahaz, everything is going to be just fine. In verse 5, we read, Syria, Ephraim, the son of Remaliah, have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, let us go up against Judah and vex it. Let us make a breach therein and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. In other words, Syria and the northern kingdom are planning to install a puppet king in Judah who will do their bidding. But again, the Lord says, don't worry. In verse 7, we read, Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, 
and the head of Damascus, Rezin. Now, again, this is a lot of names and it can be confusing, but remember, Damascus is the capital of Syria and Rezin is the king. And within three score and five years shall Ephraim, remember that's the dominant tribe of Israel, be broken that it be not a people. So in other words, Ahaz, don't worry about Syria or Israel. I'm going to take care of them. Now, chapter 18 is a continuation of the story in chapter 17. So we're going to bounce back and forth between these chapters. But notice the Lord's advice in chapter 18, verse 9. Associate yourselves, O ye people, and ye shall be broken in pieces. Now, just a little bit of a side note. When I was younger, as I would be reading these chapters in 2 Nephi, if I could ever find any phrases that I understood, I would always highlight those and be really excited that I understood a word or two from Isaiah. So I still remember in one of my older scriptures, I had highlighted the phrase, associate yourselves. And I wrote in the margin of my scriptures, I should associate myself with other people. Now, just to be clear, is it good to associate yourself with other people? Absolutely. But that is not what this verse is teaching. The Lord is saying, do not associate yourself with other people. Do not take counsel with others. Trust in the Lord. So what do you think? Will Ahaz take the Lord's counsel? To understand this part of the story, we have to go to 2 Kings chapter 16. Here we read, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God. Keep that context in mind. As we're reading, Ahaz is a very wicked individual. He did these horrible, evil sacrifices. And so have that context in the back of your mind as we're learning more about his actions. Continuing in 2 Kings 16, we read, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to war. They besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. Can you see how this is the exact same storyline that we were talking about in Isaiah 7 or 2 Nephi 17? In 2 Kings 16, 7, we read, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am thy servant and thy son. Come, save me out of the hand of the king of Syria and out of the hand of the king of Israel, which rise up against me. Ahaz is doing exactly what he was told not to do. He's making an alliance. He's trying to associate himself with the king of Assyria. Continuing, we read, Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it for a present to the king of Assyria. So in other words, Ahaz sends a tribute to the king of Assyria. He's doing exactly what Isaiah told him not to do. He's made an alliance. He's associated himself with Assyria. In the short run, it seems like this works great because Assyria will go and scatter the 10 tribes and defeat Syria. But Assyria was going to do that anyways. In future generations, this is going to have serious consequences for the people of Judah, and we'll talk about that more in our next class. But for now, I want to jump back and explore the most famous verses in 2 Nephi chapter 17. The Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depths or in the heights above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, at first, this sounds good, right? Because we know that you shouldn't ask for a sign. But based on what we already know about Ahaz, it seems like this is a false piety. The Lord says, okay, I will give you a sign. A virgin shall conceive and shall bear a son 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, as you and I read this verse, we're probably really excited. We say, okay, great. Finally, a verse I understand. This is clearly about Jesus Christ. And it is about Jesus Christ. There's also another fulfillment. Take a look at verse 16. For before the child, meaning a virgin shall conceive and bear a child, before this child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. So did you notice this? The Lord says a virgin will conceive and bear a son. And before this child is very old, the land that you're worried about, Syria and Israel, will be forsaken of both her kings. So this can't just be about Jesus Christ. There's got to be something that relates to Ahaz's day and time because this was a sign to him. And if you think about it, that makes sense. If you were having a really hard time and I said, don't worry, the second coming will be in 500 years. You might say, well, that's great. Happy for that. But what about me right now? If we turn over to 2 Nephi chapter 18, verse 1, we see the Lord saying to Isaiah, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning Maher Shalahashbaz. Now that's a fun name. And if you're looking for a middle name for your next child, you might consider Maher Shalahashbaz. It means the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And that can sound negative, but in context, this is saying your enemies will be swiftly destroyed. It's actually a hopeful message for the people of Judah. We read, I went in unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then the Lord said unto me, Call his name Maher Shalahashbaz. For behold, the child shall not have knowledge to cry, My father, my mother. Before the riches of Damascus, that's a reference to Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that's a reference to Israel, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. Can you see how these are parallel passages? In both cases, a child is going to be born, and before this child is very old, either knows the difference between good and evil or knows how to say mom, dad, before this child is very old, the land that you're worried about, Syria and Israel, will be destroyed. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, whoa, Brother Hilton, are you saying this verse isn't about Jesus Christ? I'm saying it's not exclusively about him. Listen to what Elder Jeffrey R. Holland taught. He said, this sign was given to the Old Testament King Ahaz, encouraging him to take his strength from the Lord rather than the military might of Damascus, Samaria, or other militant camps. There are plural or parallel elements to this prophecy, as with so much of Isaiah's writings. The most immediate meaning was probably focused on Isaiah's wife, who brought forth a son about this time the child becoming a type and a shadow of the greater later fulfillment of the prophecy that would be realized in the birth of Jesus Christ. Maher Shalahashbaz meant destruction is coming for your enemies. Jesus Christ means our enemies, sin and death, will be overcome. Now, I know a couple of people still might be puzzled about this. You might be thinking, well, wait a second. It says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The only virgin birth I've heard about is the Virgin Mary. So how can this be about Maher Shalahashbaz? In the original Hebrew of Isaiah, the word that we have translated as virgin simply means a young maiden. It doesn't have a connotation of not having had sexual relations. Another person might say, well, wait a second. It says his name shall be Emmanuel, not Maher Shalahashbaz. But by the same logic, Jesus couldn't be the fulfillment of prophecy either because his name is Jesus, not Emmanuel. 
we have to remember that Emmanuel means God with us. So in terms of the fulfillment with Maher Shalahashbaz, it's like the Lord is saying, I am with you. I'm going to help you defeat your enemies, Syria and Israel. We see a greater fulfillment of this in Jesus Christ. As Matthew recounts the birth of the Savior, he says, All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Jesus Christ came down to earth as a manifestation of God's love for each one of us. Now, I know what some of you are thinking to yourselves, I wish I could read more in-depth information about these chapters. Wish granted. I've linked to a great article about 2 Nephi chapter 17 and 18 and additional resources for studying these chapters on the course website. I want to conclude with just reflecting a little bit on Ahaz. We've made him out to be the bad guy, and it's clear from the scriptures that he's made a lot of bad choices. I have to say, though, I'm kind of sympathetic with him when it comes to being filled with fear. It's hard to have confidence and trust in the Lord when it seems like things are going wrong. I think about my own life back in the years 2004 to 2008 when I lived in Miami, Florida. I love living in Miami. There were times we got to go to Disney World. There were adventures with hurricanes, putting up the shutters and dealing with the aftermath. And I especially loved the people I got to work with in the Seminary and Institute program. But there came a time in my life when I felt like our family should move back to Utah so I could pursue a PhD. There were some complications with my employer in terms of returning to Utah, and it was something I was really nervous about. The Lord assured me that everything would work out. In my journal, on November 13th, 2007, I wrote, At the temple, I felt reiterated some previous impressions telling me, don't spend any time worrying about the upcoming transfer possibilities enjoy every minute of being in Miami. Just like Isaiah gave a message to Ahaz saying, don't be afraid. The Lord through the Holy Ghost gave me that clear message. But I was afraid. As we were trying to sell our house, it was during a housing crisis and our home had lost a lot of value. I was so worried. To make matters worse, I was told by my employer that there wasn't a job reassignment option for me. So if I left Miami, I would have to quit my job. The prospect of losing money on the house and losing my job scared me. In February of 2008, I wrote in my journal, things are a bit tough right now. We visited with a realtor yesterday and the news was very grim. I had no idea it could turn this bad. The next day I wrote, it is taking all of my energy to stay positive. Economic news is non-stop bad. I was more like Ahaz than I wanted to admit, even though the Lord had told me, don't worry, I should have had more trust in the Lord. Miracles happened. There was someone who was really interested in our house and he was willing to pay the asking price for it, even though there were comparable homes in the neighborhood that were selling for less. It was a total miracle. The miracle concerning my job happened a little bit differently. I kept thinking that at the last moment, my employer would say, don't worry, we've got a space for you in Utah, but they didn't. So when we moved to Utah, I lost my job and that was difficult. So to kind of make ends meet, I taught part-time at BYU and I worked as a research assistant in my PhD program. It's interesting because a couple of years later, when there was a job opening to join the religion faculty at BYU, I applied and the major requirements were experience teaching at BYU and experience doing research. 
I would not have had either of these opportunities if I'd been maintaining my previous employment. So in other words, by losing my job, opportunities opened to help me get the job that I really wanted. Because at the same time that I was writing about my fears and concerns, I also wrote in my journal, I'd like to teach at BYU. On another occasion, I wrote, what I would hope for most is to teach at BYU for my career. I'm looking at a career of teaching at BYU as the most attractive option. There's that old song, I thank God for unanswered prayers. In my case, if only I would have trusted more, I could have had a more peaceful, happy experience in my final months in Miami. I hope that as you and I press forward with our lives, that we'll remember the story of Ahaz, that we'll take the words of the Lord to heart. Be not afraid. I want to conclude with these words from Isaiah chapter 26, verse 3. God will keep in perfect peace all who trust in Him, all whose thoughts are fixed on Him. Let's keep our focus on Jesus Christ and find peace and joy through Him. We don't need to be afraid. Thank you for listening today. We hope you'll rate this podcast and leave a review. It really helps others discover it. This course is more than a podcast. There are several additional elements, including readings, PowerPoints, and other learning resources. These are all freely available at johnhiltoniii.com slash the Book of Mormon. We hope to see you there.